another edition of the Passball Show brought to you by JohnPielli.com, as well as St. Aloysius Church and School in Jackson, New Jersey. And Me? I know who I am. I'm a dude playing a dude disguised as another dude. And we do a little NBA. Want to talk a little bit about Jimmy Butler. And in all honesty, we'll probably start out by hitting a whole lot of baseball. Because I am good at three things. Fighting, screwing, and talking baseball. But anything that's on your mind, please let me know. You can comment on either the Facebook Live or the Periscope feed. And this way, we'll shift the topic to whatever's on your mind. But as always, thank you for tuning in. Glad to be with you. And obviously got World Series tonight, Game 3 in L.A., uh, you had a Thursday night NFL game. The Houston Texans win their fifth straight game. Started out 0-3. and Now they're kind of on fire lately, so good for them. Give themselves some uh, some credit. And it's funny, you can make that relationship to the Giants and say, when is, exactly, when is it exactly too much to be able to come back from? And if you follow the season, obviously the way it's gone for the New York Giants is sitting there at one and six. We talked earlier in the week about uh, trading Eli Apple, trading Snacks Harrison. Well, what's going to be next? It's probably going to be a fire sale or anything that they could get some legitimate value for before the trading deadline. And there's probably no issue with them doing that. I don't think they're going to win anything this year. But you look at a team like the Houston Texans, which had a lot of talent, and I think a similar amount of talent to the New York football giants, got off to a rough start and managed to put it together. Deshaun Watson, great job yesterday, throwing for the five touchdowns or getting the five touchdowns. And it looks like they, what the Houston Texans have done is they've adjusted their offense to a point where Deshaun Watson has taken less hits. Now, you may say, if you're a Giants fan, well, it's going to be a lot harder to do because the Giants' offensive line is weak. Now, I I, I don't know. I, I don't know if I agree or disagree about it. And that's what I, what I think. You know, I'm kind of in the middle. I'm a little torn. Um, as uh, the great Howard Cosell would say, he would say that I'm ambivalent on this topic. And that's kind of where I am because I think you can blame the Giants offensive line all that you want but at some point the star players that are on the field are gonna at least once or once in a while make a difference and I think from a team standpoint from a building standpoint from a coaching standpoint at some point you gotta set your players up to get the best out of them and I know it's not as simple as just hiking a ball and chucking it to somebody. But maybe different efforts with different types of game plans need to be put in, in into mind. Now, I'm not talking about saving the New York Giants season, but I'm talking about putting better play on the field, potentially setting themselves up to where they could win some games that they should win. I mean, they play the Washington Redskins. They play the San Francisco 49ers, who obviously are without Jimmy Garoppolo. They play the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, which no matter who their opponent is, seems like a winnable game for whoever's playing them. So they're in a position where they can save some face. Now, I'm not saying they don't have to go to a ridiculous rebuild, but I do think there's enough adjustments you can make, especially when you have the talented players that the New York Giants did. When you have Beckham and Barkley and Shepard and Ingram. And even Eli Manning for what he's accomplished over the course of his career. Even though we agree that he's probably not the same player. But can he get the ball in those guys' hands 
quickly. And if it's a matter of just hiking a ball and just chucking it to OBJ, or maybe being a little more creative with some of the things of, as we hit the opening point of the pass ball show tonight, probably going to fill up the better part of an hour. But it's just a reminder, this part of the program is provided by Castrol Motor Oil, which is a reminder that they provide maximum protection against viscosity and thermal breakdown. So two MLB managers end up getting jobs for the first time in Major League Baseball yesterday. The Minnesota Twins announcing that they're going to hire Rocco Baldelli, former Tampa Bay Rays player, outfielder, and of course the former um, you know, longtime major leaguer. He's been part of the Tampa Bay coaching staff for the several, last several years. Third base coach, bench coach, whole thing. And he's going to get his chance to be a major league manager for the first time. Also, Charlie Montoyo, who was a lifelong Tampa Bay Ray, and I really mean that to the nth degree, uh, an, an original minor league manager for the Tampa Bay Rays going back, actually the Devil Rays going back to 1997 which if you don't know in baseball with certain expansion teams, they're given a year to play some farm clubs or to have some minor league teams so they could build up talent for that next season. And Charlie Montoya was the manager of a minor league team in the Tampa Bay Devil Rays organization in 1997. The Rays, the Devil Rays didn't come into the league until 1998. He spent, what, 18 years? As a minor league manager, joined the major league coaching staff as a third base coach for about three years. And last year was the bench coach, um, a guy that I think is, you know, has learned a lot and I think deserves the opportunity to manage pretty similar to Joe Madden. And I'm not going to say that he is Joe Madden, but Joe Madden for a long period of time uh, got his feet wet by being a coach on the uh, Anaheim Angels and the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim staff. And the same thing that Montoya kind of learned on the job is deserve it of a major league opportunity. But one of the things that stand out to me that I wanted to bring up about this is Major League Baseball, you followed, obviously, for a while of what's happening in baseball in regards to the changes in the front office structure and the overemphasis, in some cases, of analytics and numbers and how, to, how it's applied now to the job of the field manager. And you've seen veteran managers going back to even the days of Joe Torre and Bobby Cox and Tony Larusa. Their departures from the game were kind of the start of what we're seeing right now. Now, even guys like Buck Showalter and Mike Sosha were either run out of town or made legitimate agreements that there were, it was their time to walk away. Now you see more analytic mindsets, but most importantly, new faces to the realm of being major league managers. And, you know, if you look at the hirings of Montoyo and the hiring of Rocco Baldelli and assume that either the Texas Rangers or the Baltimore Orioles decide to bring in a first-time manager, you're going to look at a situation where you're going to have more than 30% or at least 30% of major league baseball teams that have hired a brand new manager who was managing for the first time. And I find that fascinating because, you know, we went through the 80s and the 90s and the early part of 2000s where there were so many retreads, so many guys that were given multiple opportunities. And, you know, for some some of them, it worked out. You know, look at a Terry Francona with the Boston Red Sox, 
struggled with the Philadelphia Phillies, may not have necessarily inherited the best team, but the bottom line is things didn't work out. And he ends up getting a chance with the Boston Red Sox. They win the World Series, the whole thing. You know, John Farrell ends up managing in Toronto for a couple of years. He kind of wore out his welcome there or was at a point where Toronto wanted to see some results out of its team. He ends up walking away, going to the Boston Red Sox, wins a World Series in his first year. We're not going to see much of that anymore because the managers seem to be hired from behind the scenes. And it's not like you're looking at prior managerial experience. Now, I will say some of the guys that have been hired over the last couple of years have been minor league managers before. None of them have been major league managers before. Some of them have been major league coaches. But in a lot of cases, you know, you're looking at people that are hired just basically off broadcast teams like Aaron Boone. You know, the pitching coach of the Cleveland Indians, Mickey Calloway, Gabe Kapler, out of the front office with the Los Angeles Dodgers. So you're seeing guys that obviously are hired now with some experience with organizations, particularly with Tampa Bay, with Montoyo, and with Baldelli. But you got David Bell, who's working in the front office with San Francisco Giants. So I think you're seeing, obviously, a transition, which has been obvious. If you pay any attention to baseball, you understand what's going on. But I wonder what goes into it now when we talk about the hiring of a major league manager. And I'm curious to see, from a front office perspective, what exactly they're looking for. Are they looking for a yes man? Are they looking for somebody that is going to answer a series of questions that they have about analytics or the operations of a major league organization, if they answer them correctly, are they in better position to get a job? Is it referral based? Are you saying, hey, this person is rising through this particular team system? And, you know, because I look at a guy like, let's say, an Aaron Boone, and I'm not knocking Aaron Boone. I mean, he won 100 games as the Yankees manager in his first season. Obviously, a longtime major leaguer, second generation major league manager third-generation MLB player. So obviously, you know, baseball is in his blood. You know, he's played the game. So there, you know, it's not like he's come from completely outside, but when he retired from Major League Baseball, he worked for ESPN. He was on some very good ESPN broadcast teams and also some very bad ESPN broadcast teams. But, you know, that's where he got his feet wet in regards to that prerequisite to become a Major League manager. And I'm wondering how much... You know, what it is that you do even matters. Is it a straight up open job? If there's a <clears throat> the Texas Rangers or the Baltimore Orioles who are still looking for managers, I mean, if I pop myself in there, may, may it not matter that I never played Major League Baseball or never coached in Major League Baseball? Could I be a legitimate candidate if I went in there and blew the organization away with an interview? I wonder how far it's progressed. I mean, you've seen you've seen players and people that are associated with the game. They're kind of coming out of left field. Mike Matheny with the St. Louis Cardinals. He ended up essentially coming out of the front office. Mike Schilt was a yeah longtime minor league coach, was on the major league staff, and he gets the job, and all of a sudden he's got himself a long term contract. Brian Snicker, a Triple A manager. Mickey Callaway, like I said, a pitching coach. Dave Martinez, a bench coach. So these guys that have managed before, all of a sudden you're looking at it, and I don't know if it really matters anymore. I don't know if it really makes a difference if you have any sort of experience. Next thing I want to get into, and I know a lot of Mets fans are excited with the news yesterday, 
And it's not a, probably not a knock on Doug Melvin. I don't think too many Mets fans look at Doug Melvin and are like, hey, I, you know, I dislike him. I'm so glad that he's not in a mix anymore. But <clears throat> what Doug Melvin represented was that said old school baseball image. And Doug Melvin made some comments when he ended up stepping away from the Milwaukee Brewers when he was their general manager, saying the game has kind of changed. It's more of a young man's game. And obviously those comments and those statements are being held against him as he's been in consideration up until yesterday for the Mets general manager job. Now, the thought was that Fred and Jeff Wilpon go back and they probably appreciate, they probably look for, or Fred in particular, is looking for a more conventional, old-school baseball guy. And Melvin kind of fit the build. So it's a little bit of a surprise for Mets fans when we find out that Melvin is no longer in the running. Obviously, agent Brody Van Wagenen and Tampa Bay Rays Vice President of Player Development, Sham Bloom, are the two finalists. Now, here's, and listen, I don't mean to knock the air out of the balloon or the sails of a Mets fan here. Because, you know what, who's running the organization probably is going to have some pull. And I don't know if it's enough pull. I don't think that this person, under any circumstances, is getting full autonomy when it comes to running the New York Mets organization. And when I think of full autonomy, I think of a guy like Frank Cashin, who came over, you know, in the 1980 offseason and was essentially handed the baseball reins. Like everything that is in relation to baseball, Frank Cashin is going to have a hand in. I don't think you're going to get that type of power that's going to exist with the next general manager for the Mets. You, and you could say, listen, Bloom, as a 35-year-old, has been in baseball since he was 21 when he started to intern with the Tampa Bay Devil Rays. Okay. And I'd be, I'd be excited about a bright young mind being added to the mix. And, of course, Van Wagenen, as an agent, is going to be totally changing his profession if he decides or the Mets offer him the job and he accepts it. So he's completely green when it comes to this whole operation. So he's going to kind of learn as he goes. Going back to what I said before about major league managers, just kind of coming from anywhere and learning how to manage on the job. It's like on the job training, but, you know, they're getting compensated pretty well. But they're also the, one of the main components of a multi, you know, in some cases, billion dollar business. So I don't I don't know if I want to hire somebody and let's say like I'm recruiting, I'm looking to hire a job for anything. I'd prefer, especially if it's a key position that's going to impact my business, to hire somebody with some sort of experience. Now, I think the word experience has become vague right now. And experience could mean any one of a number of different things. It doesn't necessarily have to be in the case that we're talking about a general manager, X amount of years of experience as a general manager in a major leagues. So you look at the experience that Bloom has, the experience on the agent side, of course, that Van Wagenen has. And, you know, you could always point to the fact that he represents at this point several Mets players, including Yoannis Cespedes and Jacob deGrom and Noah Syndergaard. And maybe that's a way that the Mets could somehow have a middle ground in regards to paying deGrom and Syndergaard down the road. But I'm totally talking about this from a baseball standpoint. And I wonder how much the Mets ownership, particularly Jeff Wilpon, is going to continue to be pulling the strings. Now, I don't know what that means in regards to what the Mets budget is going to be. I mean, I would think it would be wise for Jeff Wilpon and Fred as he's 
kind of watching over. You know, he's, he's getting up there in age. His probably comprehension and understanding and involvement in a day-to-day baseball activities isn't what it was years ago. So how much is this general manager, regardless of it's, if it's your dream candidate? If you're a New York Mets fan and you're, you, you'd love to see Bloom get the job or Van Wagenen get the job, that'd be great. But I would be more concerned about exactly what kind of power they're going to have within this organization. And I'd be more weary if it was Van Wagenen, not because I don't trust him, not because I don't trust his experience, but I don't know if he's in a position where he can assert himself as the general manager to control the baseball operations department. I would think Van Wagenen would certainly need the three-headed monster in regards to Rashardi and Minaya and John Ricco to still be around to advise him a little bit. I'm sure there will be a little bit of a learning curve when he tries to figure out exactly what it is that the responsibilities of the Mets general manager is. And I don't know if he's going to have any sort of power whatsoever. So are you essentially hiring Jeff Wilpon? Is the Mets general manager currently in place? This perhaps fictitious search that we could talk about being real and talking about uh, involving real names and real interviews and real discussion about it. Is it a farce? Is Jeff Wilpon the Mets de facto general manager and the fact of a guy like uh, Doug Melvin either being told that he's not in a consideration or deciding maybe to walk away, which we still don't know yet. You know, we got a John Heyman report says that Melvin's out of the conversation. I don't know if, it's, if Melvin maybe decided that he didn't want the job in the terms that Jeff and Fred Wilpon were, were discussing. Now, is it a power trip? You've seen for 30, what, 37 years right now, 38 years since Fred Wilpon bought the New York Mets from the Payson family with Nelson Doubleday. And obviously years later where he bought Nelson Doubleday's piece of the team from him. And of course, Nelson is no longer with us. How much power he needs to have because under Frank Cashin, for the better part of about 10 to 12 years, it worked. You had one guy that was responsible for building a team, and he built it. Now, are you going to allow the next person to do what it is that they want to do, or do they have to stick to your plan? Number one, if that choice, whether it's Bloom, whether it's Van Wagenen, decides that they want to strip this down and build this from the bottom, which is, number one, a decision I wouldn't agree with, but number two... is something that I'd want to know if he'd had the power to do that. Is he being advised from the Wilpons Wilpons perspective to say, hey, you got to take a shot at it this year. And like I said, I'm in favor of taking a shot this year. But if that next general manager decides that they don't want to do that, do they have the power to override what it appears that Jeff and Fred Wilpon want to do? And that's take a good shot at making a postseason in 2019. This is the famous Budweiser beer. We know of no brand produced by any other brewer that costs so much to brew and age. Our exclusive Beachwood Aging produces a taste, a smoothness, and drinkability you will find in no beer at any cost. So I wanted to move on to the NBA. And something kind of intrigued me when you're you're hearing about the discussions of a potential Jimmy Butler trade. Which, by the way, Jimmy Butler is playing very well for the Minnesota Timberwolves. 
the Timberwolves are winning. Good performance last night in, in their victory. And it seems like from a clubhouse chemistry standpoint or a locker room chemistry standpoint, that maybe the exact opposite of what you would think is actually happening. Jimmy Butler's impact on his teammates seems to be a lot more positive than negative. You would figure a player that's demanded a trade, that's made it very clear he wants to get out of Minnesota, it would be something similar to what's going on with Le'Veon Bell and the Pittsburgh Steelers. You know, Bell is not playing. He, and obviously Jimmy Butler has decided to play. It's not like he's holding out. But you understand from a negative standpoint what the majority of Le'Veon Bell's teammates, the ones that aren't close friends with him, the ones that are more acquaintances, the ones that are just more teammates than anything, are going to like you, they're going to tolerate you because they're on your team, have probably turned on him. The same thing hasn't happened with the Minnesota Timberwolves and Jimmy Butler. Now that leads me to believe that there's more of a chance than before that Jimmy Butler is not going to get traded. You hear the owner, you hear the general manager, you hear the coach, all seem to be on the same page saying, hey, if you don't want to be here, we'll we'll make a trade. We'll accommodate you. Kind of like uh, Branch Rickey in 1947 with the players put, coming up with the petition saying they didn't want to play with Jackie Robinson. You know, Branch Rickey and Leo DeRocher decide, hey, they're on the same page with this. They're going to make sure that every single player knows, hey, if you don't want to be here, let us know and we'll accommodate you and trade you. That's kind of like what the Minnesota Timberwolves are doing with Jimmy Butler. Now, they're not going to just give him away. And I was concerned when I spoke about this a little bit earlier, a couple weeks ago, that that sometimes what it what it leads to be. A guy that you know wants out, a team that becomes desperate to move him, ends up selling very low on a player. And you saw that this week with the New York football giants trading Snacks Harrison for a fifth-round pick. Certainly undervalues the player that ends up going to the Detroit Lions. Lions got a steal. Giants, yeah, they get themselves a draft pick, but what's the chance that the Giants with that draft pick are going to draft anything close to what Snacks Harrison has been about and is? So, you know, you see in desperate measures cause for obviously desperate actions, and you see it right before our eyes with some of the things that you've seen in regards to trades throughout professional sports. But you know, as this applies to the, the Houston Rockets, they're obviously at a, a one and three start. And they didn't lose their third game last year. I know this isn't going to sound like a big deal, but to game eight. So they were five and two. They lost their third game in their eighth game. When they lost their fourth game last year, it was in game number 15. So they were 11 and three. The loss dropped them to 11 and four. Now they lost their fifth game in game number 30. So this team came into their 30th game at 25-4 and four and lost their fifth game. At the pace that they're going on right now, listen, they're going to need a nice winning streak or two if they're going to be anywhere close to what they did last year. So they lost their third game and their fourth this year as opposed to eight. If they drop their next game, they could lose their fourth game and their fifth game and be at a 10-game clip in regards to being behind the pace of a year before. So I understand why they're interested. I understand why they'd want to add a big-time scorer like Jimmy Butler. They lost a couple players last year. James Harden is hurt. He may be out for a couple games here and there. Trevor Ariza is not around. Carmelo Anthony, I told you, was a guy that you bring in and pretty similar to Dwight Howard. You know, you want to see Carmelo Anthony impact 
the team that he plays for in a positive way. You haven't seen that in a couple of years. You didn't see that with the Knicks. You didn't see that last year with the Oklahoma City Thunder. So you, you think of adding Jimmy Butler and the Houston Rockets decide that they want to go all in. And if you're the Minnesota Timberwolves, how can you not make this trade? The Rockets deciding that they're willing to part with four number one picks to get Jimmy Butler. Obviously, you would need some other players to go to the other side to balance out the salaries. But this sounds eerily familiar of a 2012-2013 trade made between the Boston Celtics and the Brooklyn Nets. The Brooklyn Nets coming to Brooklyn. They want to energize a new fan base with the Barclays Center, the whole thing. And what happens? They end up making a big trade with the Boston Celtics. They get themselves Kevin Garnett. They get themselves Paul Pierce. They get themselves Jason Terry. And they're willing to part with four draft picks in this trade, four number ones. A number one draft pick in 2014, one in 2016, 17, and 18. And up through this particular draft, the Nets were still paying the price for that trade. And the thing that sucks for them is they didn't win themselves an NBA championship. In fact, the addition of Garnett and Pierce, yeah, made them competitive, made them a playoff team, but certainly didn't have enough of an impact in the postseason like they were expecting it to. Now, you look at the Houston Rockets, most wins in the NBA last year, I believe, what, they won 64, 65 games, took the Golden State Warriors to seven games, and you think of the group of players that they have, yeah, they are not necessarily brand new. They're not newbies. They're not really, really young players. So you understand that at some point, this is a team that is going to be a little bit more about now than later, maybe within the next year or two, or maybe it's about this year. So I don't have a problem if I'm Houston, if I'm willing to fork over all those draft picks. But in the end, you better hope that Jimmy Butler helps you win an NBA championship. And that's a question that you got to ask. Is Jimmy Butler a good enough player? Or is he add enough to the mix of the Houston Rockets that they can beat the Golden State Warriors in a seven-game series? Now, you think of the Warriors and the team they had last year, and you add Boogie Cousins. You know, does Jimmy Butler added to the Houston Rockets team, which, of course, has James Harden and Chris Paul and Capella and, you know, some other players. Does that put them on the level of a Golden State Warriors team? And I think on paper, it may fall a little bit short. But that being said, how does the addition of another scorer like Butler impact this team? And remember, James Harden wants his shots. So if you're going to do anything to impact, especially on the court, you imagine James Harden on the same court with not only Jimmy Butler, but Carmelo Anthony. You know, it's a lot of players that kind of want to do the same thing. And I don't know how an additional score will necessarily put the Rockets over the top. But you never know. You never know how chemistry ends up asserting itself. It could be a mixture of different types of players, but it could be a mixture of star players that end up working out. Next thing I wanted to talk about. Um, I was just reading it the other day, and it's, it's not like it's not common knowledge, but you know, we want to get to a segment where we start talking about sports and sports history. And, you know, just watching the replay of Jim Marshall, the purple people leaders of the Minnesota Vikings, a guy who, by the way, belongs in Pro Football's Hall of Fame. Guy played almost 20 years. He's a very dominant defensive lineman. And he's known for one thing, of course. And if you watch the video or if you heard about it, you know that Jim Marshall picked up a football 
uh, that was dropped the fumble and ended up running the wrong way for about a 65-yard safety for his team instead of obviously going to try to score a touchdown or whatever it was. Maybe he took a jar to the you know shot to the head. Maybe he had a little bit of CTE at that moment or at least got his head wrong around where he had no idea where he was going. And he ran the ball all the way into his own end zone, which once he threw the ball out of bounds, it results in a safety for the other team. The only positive you could say about that is that the Vikings won that game. So that play did not cost the Minnesota Vikings a victory. Now it's compared to something that had happened in the late 1920s. And there was a guy by the name of Roy Regals. And he famously gets the nickname Roy Wrong Way Regals. Now, the reason that I'm talking about college football is that obviously the NFL, the way it is right now, the way it's been really for the last 40 plus years, is not the way the NFL was looked at in the 1920s. The power of college football was was way much higher, way higher than that of the any, any form of professional football. The crowds that were drawn, you know, it was it was just a common thing. Hey, uh, the that situation where you got a demand, and then the supply is less than a demand. You got major college football games of stadiums that are being sold out, sixty thousand people, seventy thousand people, as many seats as you could cram into a little arena, and every single one of them is getting filled just to watch some college football. So. That person that thinks, all right, you know, pro football is is and always has been so much better, really doesn't understand that time, really before the 1960s, where college football rang supreme over that of the National Football League. So you look at a guy like Roy Regals, who obviously gets the nickname wrong way, playing for the University of California against Georgia Tech ends up doing what Jim Marshall did in the 1970s, and that's taking a ball, picking up a fumble, and going the wrong way, resulting in in what would have been a safety, if not the fact that his own teammate, his own one of his own teammates for California, actually tried to stop him and tried to tackle him. Said, "Listen, I understand that he really thinks he's going the right way. I'm going to tackle him." And imagine running with a football towards an end zone. And not only having the opponent trying to tackle you, but having your own teammates try to tackle you. And that's what almost happened in this situation. In fact, uh, a Georgia Tech player ends up stopping him at about the the three-yard line or one-yard line. They tried to punt, and it ends up uh, either getting blocked or stopped for safety. And that play, what could have been a touchdown that turned into a safety, cost the California Golden Bears a victory against the Georgia Tech team. And obviously, when college football was ringing supreme, it was more powerful, it was more in demand than any professional football. It was something that rang with this guy forever. And in the days where he probably remembered or was told about the story of Fred Merkel, when Fred Merkel didn't touch second base and was called out on a game-winning hit, which cost the New York Giants not only a victory, but a chance to be tied for the Chicago Cubs for the National League pennant in 1980. Fred Snodgrass dropping a fly ball in the 1912 World Series, which cost the New York Giants a victory. 
Roy Regals gets remembered for years as the guy that ran the wrong way. And when he passed away in 1993, he had a very successful life after football, never made it to the pros, but was always remembered for the guy that ran the wrong way in the 1920s in a game against, between California and Georgia Tech. So before we get into the NFL picks, I just want to remind the listeners and the viewers, this copyright and broadcast is authorized under internet rights granted by the World Wide Web and is solely for the entertainment of our audience. Any publication or reproduction of the use of the pictures, descriptions, and accounts of this show without the express written consent of the past ball show, JohnPielli.com and JohnPielli LLC is prohibited. Any commercial or other use of the program, such as by charging admission for showing, is similarly prohibited. So what I wanted to get into, actually I pretty much covered everything that I wanted to today. Um, last thing I'll make about the uh, Houston Rockets point. Um, the Nets trade, they traded Kevin Garnett, Jason Terry, Paul Pierce, a guy by the name of DJ White, a 2017 first round pick, which ended up being Kyle Kuzma, and a 2017 second round pick, which was a guy by the name of Vizenkov. The Celtics got Bogans, Brooks, Humphreys, Joseph Wallace, Obviously, all players that weren't expected to be impactful just to set off and balance the salaries. Their 2014 first-round pick became a guy by the name of James Young. Still in the NBA, barely not an impactful player. 2016 first-round pick became Jalen Brown, who, of course, we've seen in the playoffs. Obviously, a prominent player for the Boston Celtics. 2017 first-round draft pick traded to Philadelphia, became Markel Fultz, but what was ended up traded for got them Jason Tatum. 2018 first round draft pick was part of a trade, and it ended up being Colin Sexton, who is now playing for the Cleveland Cavaliers. So as we get set for the NFL picks this week, um, we're sitting here at a ridiculously hideous 12, 21, and 2 record. And if you compare it to the way a lot of people have done, it's it's tough, especially when you're picking with the spread. It's a handicap that is very well set up in the National Football League. And not to make any excuses, it's just time to make the right pick. So we're, we're continuing to make adjustments, just like any pro sports team that struggles or isn't doing good. They're supposed to make adjustments to try to get better and get better performance the next week. That's what I'm looking to do today. So first game we're going to pick on, Seattle Seahawks heading to Detroit against the Lions. Now I've questioned over the last couple weeks Seattle's motivation. And Seattle, when I've picked against them, I haven't done that bad this year. I don't think this is a situation where the Lions are going to run away with the game, but I like the Lions. I like that the Lions are favored by three at home. I think if they win this by four or five or six points, I could really see it happening. And I don't know where the Seattle Seahawks are looking to go this year. I mean, they're going to need to win a couple games back-to-back and get themselves in a position where they could potentially scare anybody in a National Football Conference. I don't know if their run is over. I don't know if it's time to turn the page with them, but obviously a lot of the defensive players aren't there anymore. Losing Earl Thomas for the season certainly is not helping them. And from an offensive standpoint, I, I don't know where that big play, either running back or receiver, is. I see a bunch of marginal players. 
but I don't see anybody that could completely take over a game. So give me Detroit minus three at home against Seattle. Game number two. I'm going to take another home team, but this one is actually a dog at home. And the Carolina Panthers are in a position where they could kind of take control of the NFC South, put themselves in a position where they can move themselves, potentially win a division title, and build off of what they did last year. Maybe a little bit under the radar this year, a lot of attention's on Los Angeles with the Rams, a lot of attention's on the defending Super Bowl champion, Philadelphia Eagles. Even the Atlanta Falcons, who are sitting there at, what, three and five, or two and five, are being looked at it as, as a team that may have a little more upside than the Carolina Panthers. So I think they're getting disrespected a little bit. Now I wonder how that impacts the clubhouse, impacts the locker room. Is Cam Newton talking about this? Is this bulletin board material? I don't know. But I like the matchup against Baltimore. Yeah, I think Baltimore has been a, a little bit of a dog when it comes to playing on a road. And for whatever reason, and I know they're one of the best defensive teams in the National Football League, they don't seem to be given good efforts on the road. And I think this is a Carolina team that, first of all, I believe should be favored at home. So I think the line kind of drove me to it. But I think this is a sounder pick, and I feel more confident doing this. So I'm going with Carolina plus two at home against Baltimore. The next game I'm going to pick is another home team, but this is a home team that can't seem to get out of their own way. And a home playing at a home where the team is abandoning it and the team stinks. So if you're an Oakland Raiders fan, sure, if you enjoy watching NFL games, you may go out there. But that old silver and black mentality where you're diehard fans, and of course the Raiders are a semi-national team. You got Raider fans in New Jersey, Raider fans in Florida, Raiders fans in Texas, Raiders fans in Montana. I understand it. It's a fan base that travels well for whatever reason. May have come from the days of the 1970s where a lot of Dallas Cowboy fans and Pittsburgh Steelers fans kind of emerged. So you understand the Raiders being successful at that same time have a lot of national fans. A lot of people in that region, in the Oakland, the Los Angeles, the California area, are a little disappointed that they're heading to Las Vegas. And they said at the very least, I'm sure in a lot of fans' minds, they're like, hey, if you're leaving... At least give us something worth watching. I think you'll get that this week. And I don't know how much of it is because of what the Raiders bring to the table. Obviously, the trade of Amari Cooper to the Dallas Cowboys, you know, puts them a little shorthanded. You know, they would love to have Khalil Mack. John Gruden traded him before the season started. But I look at the Indianapolis Colts and I'm like, this is a matchup of what team is worse at this point. And I and I don't think the I, I don't think the Colts could stop anything on defense right now. Andrew Luck, who has been somewhat okay, he has stayed away from injury. He's avoiding the big hit, but still doesn't have a really good offensive line there. And I could see the Raiders kind of having a little, at least for a day, where where they could kind of enjoy it and have their fans enjoy a victory. So give me Raiders plus three at home against Indianapolis. Next game I'm going to get into is pretty much a pickle. And when I put placed my bet, it actually, Minnesota was favorited by one at home. So I did my picks earlier in the week. I got them all in there on uh, DraftKings mobile sports app. 
uh, sports betting app. So I, I got Minnesota when they were minus one at home against New Orleans. And I think New Orleans is looking to, you know, perhaps make that disparity that exists between playing home and being on the road. But, you know, I like Minnesota at home here. I think, you know, Kirk Cousins and the Vikings could get a victory here. And to me, it didn't matter if it was a pick because me picking the Vikings obviously would be more beneficial to be a pick You know, I could get a push if the Vikings lose by a point. But I, but I look at it right now, and I just think the Vikings are going to have their day. So give me Minnesota minus one at home against New Orleans. Last game, the biggest spread of the week. And it's Tampa Bay going to Cincinnati against the Cincinnati Bengals. And the Bengals have been certainly an up and down team. They got off to what a three and zero, excuse me, three and zero start. They haven't been the same team since. Now they're in a game where I think they really need it, and it's coming at the right time. Playing against a Tampa Bay team that, yes, you know they're going to be able to score points, whether it's with Jameis Winston as their quarterback or Ryan Fitzpatrick as their quarterback. I, I look at it. And I, I believe that the Tampa Bay Bucks are on their way down. So I like this matchup from the Cincinnati Bengals standpoint in a point where they absolutely need a win. And I think obviously if they lose this game by any stretch of the imagination, it's probably going to kill their season. So give me Cincinnati minus four and a half against Tampa Bay. I got the picks up on my website. So if anybody wants to check it out, johnpiali.com. A little bit of a recap of the show today. It's talking about Major League Baseball managers. 30% of Major League Baseball managers are going to be either in their first or second season. Now, not only that, but you're talking about not only first-time managers, but all managers that have not managed anywhere before. You know, they're not new to their team. None of them have managed before. They're either in their first or second season ever as a major league manager. Next thing I got into, the Mets, do they already have their general manager? Is Jeff Wilpon and Fred Wilpon essentially looking to hire a puppet, a yes man, a person that is going to have a title of general manager of the New York Mets, but really is just going to do whatever Jeff and Fred Wilpon want them to do? Because if that's the case, it doesn't matter. If you're bringing an innovative mind like Cheyenne Bloom or an outside-the-box candidate like Brody Van Wagenen. If the Wilpons are running the team, I don't know how much of an impact an outside voice that's coming in can have. Talked a little bit about Jim Marshall and Roy Wrongway Regals. A little bit of an interesting story. Jim Marshall, when he ran the wrong way in that famous game playing for the Minnesota Vikings, was not the first person to do that. Roy Regals did it playing college football for California against the Georgia Tech team in the 1920s. And this was a time, of course, when college uh, college football was much more prominent than the NFL. Talked a little bit about the Houston Rockets. Would they be making a mistake by trading for first-round draft picks for Jimmy Butler? Jimmy Butler obviously can give them a huge impact. Might be that player that could put them over the top. But even with Jimmy Butler, are they good enough to catch the Gold State Warriors? And if they 
trade for first-round draft picks for Jimmy Butler. Just remember, 2012, the Brooklyn Nets made a trade for Kevin Garnett and Paul Pierce. They traded four first-round draft picks. The last of the four first-round draft picks was in this past year's draft. So if the Rockets make the wrong decision here, they could be paying for it for a long time. Hope everybody has a nice weekend. You got some good college football games coming up this weekend, obviously. NFL, World Series tonight, NBA, NHL. The Mets maybe by Monday have a new general manager. But once again, do they already have their general manager in place? Are they essentially hiring a puppet or a yes man or somebody that is simply just going to do whatever the Wilpons say? Hope everybody has a nice weekend. God bless you. And as always, I'll see you on the other side.